Hello and welcome to Overthinking It Game of Thrones TV Recap Season 4 Episode 9. I'm Pete Fenzel, your host today, with a brave crew of three who've been commanded here by our absent Lord Commander Matt Rather to hold the gate. <laughs> That's right. It is the most expensive Game of Thrones episode of the season. And as such, this will be the most expensive overthinking it TV recap of the season. I had some very good honey in this tea. It was just really artisanal. And uh, yep, and this is my Galaxy S4 phone, which these are like the most expensive things I have in this entire place, other than this Nicolas Cage snow globe, which was a prize that we won in trivia. Hey, I won that with you. <laughs> you did, you did. And that's the voice of Ryan Shealy. Here, let me cut to the chase. Thanks for listening to us on our feed. Thanks for watching us here on YouTube. Those of us those of you who are live, please do tweet us your questions and comments about the episode. This is a tricky episode to discuss. It doesn't give us as much fodder as last episode, and it hopefully won't give us as much as next episode, which we hope is a barn burner. But there are some interesting things to talk about, and we love to engage with you guys, hear what you have to think and say about the big battle scene. So let's, as we usually do, go around the horn to our panel, our brave panel of three, including myself, and ask you guys what for you was the scene or moment in this episode that provided you with a gateway to understand what happened. And that's tricky in this episode because so much of what happened was sorty, sorty, fighty, fighty, shooty, shooty, all that other stuff. But there was other stuff going on. And anytime there's fighting going on, if it's any good in a movie or a TV show, it's always about something else. Uh, so let's jump as long as we're, we've got uh, Ryan's already spoken up. Uh, Ryan, oh, excellent. His video feed is up, ladies and gentlemen. Ryan Shealy, how are you doing, Ryan? Oh, good. Um, yeah, was my video, video? I didn't know that my video feed wasn't up. Um, but yes, here I am. So, yep. are we going in this order? Well, Ryan goes before. Oh, I was doing this. My first <laughs> recap is ruined. Yeah, this recap. Yes. All right. Yeah, please check out our podcast this week if you enjoy high concept work, uh, needless extra effort. No, it was glorious. Our, our our Edge of Tomorrow Groundhog Day podcast on the main podcast feed this week was one of my favorites in a long time. So we're going to actually go in alphabetical order by last name and go to as is as is customary on overthinking it and go to Shana Mlowski first for her take. Shana, your hair looks wonderful tonight. <laughs> oh, thank you, Pete. Your hair also. Also looks great. You know what? We're just a beautiful group, aren't we? All three of us. Yes. Only I one don't... of us, though, stopped to comb her hair before the video podcast started. Yeah, I put it through for like two whole seconds. <laughs> um, yeah, so my Downton Abbey moment, and there weren't that many to choose from, as you said, Pete, um, was the very first scene where uh, Sam and John are talking about the uh, Night's Watch oath. And um, Sam was saying that it's actually a little open to interpretation with the sex thing um, because it only specifically says that you can't have a wife and it stipulates that you can't have children, but it doesn't say anything about not banging people. Um, and I thought that this episode was very much about oaths, obviously. You have that scene where, um, what's his name? Gren? Is that his name? Uh, the guy with the beard is holding the gate and they're saying the Night's Watch Oath. Um, I think this episode, if it was about anything, and I don't know, that's kind of up for debate, um, is about sort of interpreting the rules and you have sort of a sliding scale and on one side is the Night's Watch and the people who um, are very strictly um, looking at the rules and uh, I guess the, I don't know, the 
order of things. And then on the other side of the sliding scale, you have the wildlings who are just a bunch of nut jobs screaming everywhere. But the thing that really matters is not looking at each word in the oath, but just, I guess, uh, not going to the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is that you hold the wall by any means necessary, even if it's not the way we did things. You fight the giants, even though the books don't say that giants are real. You just you do what you got to do, uh, because that's what the oath means, even if that's not exactly what it says. That makes any sense. That's what I got. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Shana. Shana seems a little bit frustrated with the Watchers on the Wall. Would that be an accurate statement? Um, I've, I don't know about frustrated. It's just, um, I, I think I've said this before, but this isn't my favorite subplot in the whole Game of Thrones song of Ice and Fire thing. I find Jon Snow a bit boring. Um, and also this episode was interesting to me and maybe a little, not frustrating, but disappointing in that we've talked about how this fantasy series sort of subverts all of our expectations and all of the tropes, uh, you know, associated with the fantasy genre. And this episode was very straightforward. Um, I, note, uh, I noted on Twitter that it was very much like 55 uh, minutes of inspirational speeches. Um, I mean, Bolinki, uh, who is our overthinking it writer who made that uh, video, that famous video of the inspirational speeches in two minutes, he could have cut apart this episode and made a very similar video. And it was, you know, they weren't mocking it or, you know, George R. R. Martin wasn't saying, this is the way other fantasy stories work, not mine. Yeah, they were playing it straight, which I guess some people might have gone, yay, that's, you know, a victory, hurrah. But uh, I expect more, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all they needed was, like, defending the wall is a game of inches. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was kind of expecting, like, Legolas to come and run up the, the mammoth and all that, but it didn't happen. All right, so Ryan Sheely, we heard his voice. So, Ryan, what was, your, what was your take on this episode? What was the scene that, for you, provided a gateway to interpretation, if there was one well, in... For me, it was also the um, the John Snow and and Sam like nudge nudge wink wink. You ever been with a lady? Uh, scene, right? Because well, so that scene reminded me a lot um, of the Monty Python uh, skit uh, sketch um, nudge nudge, right? Where a guy is. Go, like uh, talking and talking about, hey, um, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been with a lady? Hey, hey. And then there's a lot of euphemism building up to um, the punchline saying, so what's it like? And Sam cuts to the chase a little more. Um, and uh, Sam, uh, and what um, John said in the line that I wrote down that I thought was um, a window into some of what was going on in this episode is you know, the way that John described uh, sex was that it's like you're entwined with a whole other person. Um, and he, he fumbled a little bit more uh, around that, but um, that that was the heart of it. And I think that we saw throughout different sides of this battle and different parts of the, uh, the prelude to it, um, different ways in which people are entwined with one another. I think, I mean, the most notable one is you know, this site of the wall, which is to be the barrier, you know, a clean barrier 
um, between the world of 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 ruled men and the and the realm of the wildlings. Um, and we see this um, the, we see this you know becoming um, and it's been much more permeable than it's you know than it notionally is for a while because the wall has been scaled and breached by Egret and John and that band um, last season. But that we we're seeing now um, lots of different ways of intermingling and um, and fusing and you know once and you even see this um, you know again we saw, we see also the use of the um, the the guys who can go into a sea you know to be who can become one and entwined with animals and with with our spy owl um, and and we can kind of bring the changes on this a little later on but I just saw lots of these. Um, these questions about kind of um, of intermingling and, and merging, uh, and then you know, and then its opposite of, of separation. Um, and I and I think that was kind of an interesting theme that um, was running through this episode. And I, I'd love to also talk about what this episode and this kind of arc about the North. Its importance in the in the series. And I know that we have a no spoilers policy, but I think that for me. As uh, maybe this is—I don't know if this is for me as a non-book reader or just um, this is for everyone. But like, I remember that in this season, as I've been watching what's going on at the wall, I've had the most trouble remembering what was happening at at and north of the wall and why it matters. Um, and and you know that what is the stakes? Why are the wildlings invading? Um, and you know what are the stakes of that? Um, and and I think that. You know, for me, it seems that you know that people say, "Well, we have to keep them out." But um, I'd love to kind of de- delve into that a little bit more about what that means, and both in terms of the narrative and in terms of kind of uh, broader uh, thematic concerns. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a pretty uh, pretty contemporarily relatable uh, immigrant phobia kind of thing, where right. the wall was put up to keep the White Walkers out. So that's what we think, right? And I'm, I'm not giving anything away. I'm just saying, like, you know, the story is that the wall was put up to keep the White Walkers out thousands and thousands of years ago. There are people who live on the other side of the wall for whatever reason. Uh, we don't really know why they're there, uh, but they're there. And uh, then the White's Watch is sworn to keep anybody from crossing the wall. And uh, the wildlings have periodically over the course of history kind of crossed the wall and because they don't understand or they don't ascribe to, it's not that they don't understand it, they don't ascribe to ideas of property rights or ideas of kind of natural monopoly of force or what have you or any other kinds of political ideas that Ryan would be able to identify better than I do, they really willy-nilly go around killing and murdering people whenever they cross the wall, killing and murdering and raping and, and other stuff. Um, it's been, you know, it's repeated often that the northern areas really hate it when the wildlings show up because they just they just be, kill everybody, they take all the stuff, uh, all that other stuff. Um, so the Night's Watch wasn't put there to keep out the wildlings. The Night's Watch right. has a big problem with the White Walkers that are coming, right? Um, right. And Mance Raider is leading the White... Who, by the way, hasn't been in the season at all. I'm wondering if they're just saving right. money by just not having him in the season. Um, and he's, uh, he's leading the Wildlings south in a retreat, not in an attack. He's trying to get away from the White Walkers who are behind him. Uh, right, and so he is sort of being pushed forward by them, but he also has this chip on his shoulder, and the wildlings have a huge chip on their shoulder about the way in which the Night's Watch and the Lords of the South have uh, excluded them from things like warmth and farmland and things like that, even though they're not really farmers. So he is also making a point, you know, as also a former Night Watchman, that I'm going to come and kill you, 
right? It's a case of just like with a lot of the show, it's like there's a real problem and then there's a socially constructed problem. Yeah. And the, yeah, and the yeah, socially yeah. constructed problem interferes with people dealing with like – well, I shouldn't say real. I should say the natural problem. Right, so the natural problem would be like, oh, this person is sick, or this person is like, you know, oh no, there's like a big war that's happening, or we don't know how to run the country, and everything's falling apart, and like the social problem is like, oh, these families are war are battling for influence against each other, and they don't, they can't agree on collective action or anything like that. So that's sort of why this is all happening. This, I think, right. takes. Yeah, go ahead. Oh no, no, yeah, and I think that that makes sense, and I think that the the framing. I mean, I think it's it's hard, right? That you know, one man's uh, retreat is another man's attack, right? So that it, – and it's, it's – it's, I feel like some of that gets lost because as the kind of – the Mance Raider army moving south has become this inevitability, um, the – and again, I mean it's, it's interesting. Maybe there's, there's something uh, to this that the why of – both the why of why the Night's Watch can't let anybody through and the why of, you know – why Mance Raider and the Wildlings are moving south kind of gets lost, right? And so that, um, I mean, it is it is interesting that, you know, that there are other ways, like, this isn't anybody's best case scenario. No one really wants to have this fight. And, you know, again, Mance Raider, like you say, kind of does want to have this fight to, like, what? Uh, like, if, um, like, teach the like south a lesson or something like that but like there is you know that there, there could be a much more mutually beneficial solution negotiated out on on paper right that you know and so and but i feel like that logic gets lost both in a little bit in how the wildlings are de depicted of they just there seems to be and again there may be like some diversity amongst the wildlings of uh, there seems to be kind of killing for killing's sake um and or even just killing crows and killing um you know uh people south of the wall for its own kind of intrinsic value and that i feel like muddles the other kind of we are seeking refuge like reason for that i mean i don't know it's it's it gets harder to um like because i think that everything you described felt like something i knew intuitively and yet it feels like very it's hard to reconcile with how the wildlings are, are depicted and maybe that's because we you know don't have um you know a strong in the you know the show a strong, you know, wildling point of view. We, we're like we're we're hearing this through the um, hegemonic discourse um, of, uh, of the south of the wall, right? We don't have the like, you know, the wildling studies, the subaltern wildling studies uh, perspective on uh, on this uh, um, as much, and so oh. it, I think that gets harder to understand. Yeah, I think it's also important to note, and I hate to be this guy. But the show – this is another example of how the showrunners have kind of screwed the pooch on this season, which is they have continually added these little places where they make things more lascivious, more mm -hmm. violent, more horrible. They've they felt like the books aren't racy enough and like aren't salacious enough, and they've been adding all these salacious things. Like in the books, the, there's no cannibalistic Thens. The Thens are the most civilized people north of the Wall. They're almost as civilized as the Starks. They're not eating people. Right, like now, and I talked about earlier in the recaps this season how I kind of liked that they made the fence cannibals because it's the kind of thing which, like, it kind of forces an issue. It kind of like sets up some energy, but it also really interferes with the underlying uh, tension and irony of what's happening. 
Uh, and right. also, this, the whole right. idea of the show is also, well, all the thing about the stupid Night's Watch and the knives and the raping the women to death and where I was from Flea Bottom and now I'm the king of nothing and all this garbage. That's all added from the books. None of that's in the books. Half the stuff with Egret right. isn't in the books. And, and, and I mean, it's uh, – I, I think it's particularly the showrunners, I think – um, see, saw the battle, at least from my perspective, looking at what they have tried to put together, they've tried to put together a battle scene that is a lot more conventional than what the battle, uh, the, than the underlying tense ideological situation in the narrative is. There's a deep irony and there's a tragedy to the fact that this battle yeah. is even happening. But the, yeah. throughout the season, the showrunners have been adding elements to both sides, really ratcheting up the Egret John Love story, making Egret a much more sympathetic character. Much more and much more present in the story, right? Like, I mean, it's it's a little bit diminishing in the books how she sort of is a like, you know, John kind of bangs her in a cave and then you never really hear from her again, right? Like, and it's like, um, I mean, you do see her again, but she's not like a constant presence, you know. Whether she kills Gilly in Moletown is not like a thing that happens, right? Like, um, any of that. I don't think Gilly even goes to Moletown. Um, but uh, but at any rate, it's like by trying to make the main fight between the Night's Watch and the Wildlings easier to access they've actually made it they've, they haven't succeeded because it's still really confusing i'm not sure if it's more or less confusing but it's still really confusing and it just it doesn't work on an emotional level like we're very no precise. and i yeah, yeah. I, I felt that. that's kind of why i was asking my question is that this it, it without even having read the books it felt something felt not right mm -hmm. um and i think that there's other ways um, and I mean, there were lots of um, other parts that we'll talk about that w felt right or cool or interesting or awesome. I mean, there's a large part where I was watching uh, watching the battle scene on my iPad, and um, Cognac, my uh, my fiance, was sitting across from me doing some work, and she looked up. Apparently, the look on my face was this. <laughs> Which I think was like the the time when the um, giant shot the arrow and it like hit a guy and launched him like a rocket off of the wall. Yeah. Um, and, and so there were lots of moments where, in, you know, that were of of awesomeness and coolness, and we can talk about some of the cinematography. But from this like basic level, it felt, and I think there's other reasons we can talk about this. And I don't want this to be this like. A, a session of, and I've, I've, did, I've read a few recaps, and there's a number of recaps that are, were also kind of meh on this episode, and I don't want to just be, you know, like you, like you said, I don't want to be those people. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it is a feeling, I mean, it, I think this is a show that that is so, I mean, it, it's, this episode contrasted so strongly to the last episode, uh, where the, that feeling of like you know that entire last scene and this you know of um, of the battle between Oberyn um, and the mountain uh, the, and and then the climactic head explosion. I mean that was just like I mean I watched it twice and both times it was like the emotions that I felt and then the kind of catharsis that was released along with um, Oberyn's brain fluids um, head matter um, was it's it's really powerful and this just felt like that was not clicking um and and uh either intellectually or emotionally um and so that's and i so i think that your explanation of you know uh, your explanation is 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 helpful in in illuminating that a little bit yeah so uh shana before i was gonna i was gonna do my downton abbey moment but did you oh, want to yes, weigh in any of this before i, I just i had um just a question um uh, because i don't remember does uh mance raider or the wildlings in general do they know what the political situation in the north is now with the boltons like do they even know who's in charge who they could even you know parlay with if they were going to come to some sort of agreement no 
No, the last time that Rance Raider was in the north was when Ned Stark was still in Winterfell. So yeah. that's the latest information he has on this situation. He has no knowledge of the Boltons or any of that stuff. I just, I kind um, of wonder what their end goal is. Is there just, I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's a good question. It's a good question and one you should keep in mind. Um, so, okay, so here is my down. This is what I think the episode's actually about. Right. Um, there are there. And we've talked about kind of enmeshing. I think that this episode has two main um, thematic ideas that come together and enmesh in a certain point, and then they kind of pull apart and diverge again. Uh, and there's a couple. Of, actually, there's a two. There's two big points. I think where they they really come together. Um, the first, the first point. Now, when the first Downton Abbey moment that I thought that I saw when I saw the episode was when Egret was talking about Tormund talking about having sex with a bear. Right, mm -hmm. and Egret is like, I don't want to hear about the bear you didn't fuck, right? And right. excuse my excuse my French, right? And so we got the uh, and they, whenever when like one of the things that they teach you in close reading is if something gets repeated, it's probably important, or at least like it's going to have a an, a, a more important weight, or it's going to uh, the repetition affects each instance of it in some way. So we, the mm -hmm. the episode starts out with two different people telling two different stories, uh, essentially uh, uh, that are that are about people not having sex. Now, yes, it's not that John... John isn't telling the story of Egret. Sam is telling the story, really, about how he wanted to have sex and he hasn't, right? So he wants to know about this girl and what was she like, this girl he didn't have sex with. This hype of... What he's really talking about is Gilly, who's he think is dead at this point, right? It's like, what, she, what would she have been like, right? What would that have been? And then, uh, and then Tormund repeats it and says, oh, you know, like, you know, I, I had this bear and I went like this. This is what it was like. This is what it would have been. And, of course, Egret corrects him. No, that's, you didn't actually have sex with the bear, right? So Tormund is like Sam. And then we have a third one, right? We have Aemon, we have Aemon Targaryen. We have Maester Aemon. And this is the first place where the two sides of it really connect. Um, and Maester Aemon talks about – Maester Aemon talks about the woman that he loved – and how he can remember her, you know, every bit of her, her, her eyes, her feet, and all that stuff. All that stuff Sam was asking about, right? And, um, and he says to Sam, she's more real than you are, right? Now, that's interesting from a meta perspective because Sam is an actor portraying a character. And this, this story is, in a sense, realer than Sam in that it is a story within a story and thus more accurately identifies where it is. But more than that, uh, you know, this, there's this idea of people remembering the loves that they had in the past, the sex that they wanted to have or didn't have, all this sort of like the nice stuff, the stuff that Tyrion really likes. Right, the sort of the good life, the good stuff, the love, the love versus the duty, and then there's this other side. Now, the other plot, um, just to, I know I'm, I'm I'm talking a lot, but the other plot is about uh, people's identities and names. Specifically, it's about names and about crises, and it, that's why this episode is called "The Watchers on the Wall" because you know the culminating point for this arc, as it sort of goes. Zone is how do we get to the point where Gren and the other people at the gate fighting the giant say the Night's Watch oath and fight the giant, right? That's what the Watchers on the Wall is in reference to. How do you get to the point where these people are willing to self-identify as Night's Watch and engage in this futile uh, attempt attack versus this giant? And I think that it traces all the way back to Sam talking about when he fought the White Walker, when he's talking with Pip, right? And yep. he's like, well, I wasn't Sam. I was nothing, right? I wasn't even – and all of the things that were true about me as you know me now were not true when I was fighting the White Walker, right? So that's, that's the idea is that people in their sort of pleasant life, in their good life, in their kind of uh, you know, their life of warmth and of, of happiness 
and of pleasure have an, a sense of themselves that, that comes out of this experience. But when they go into this cold and dire sort of situation, this crisis situation, they lose whatever it was that they were. You know, you don't want, no one wants to hear anymore about the bear you didn't fuck. This is a battle, all right? Nobody cares, right? And and so then when when Sam is when Sam is with Maestro Raymond, what is Sam doing? He's not up on the wall. He's in the library. He's hiding, right? He's like I, I'm trying to think about all the things that they could be doing to Gilly, but they're not doing to Gilly, right? It's another bear that isn't fucked. Is is Gilly being boiled alive, uh, you know, by the wildlings? That's not happening, right? But Sam doesn't know, and, and all that has to be sort of dropped away. And so when when Master Meister Amen is saying to Sam, you know, this woman that I remember is more real than you are, it's like you can't take these people and experiences and memories and identities from one side of the wall that is this crisis point to the other side of the wall that is this crisis point. On the other side, you have a different name, right? A different, a different, and and so and to to wrap it all up, to wrap up this sort of like mini theory of the episode, um, the other moment that really convinced me that this is what the episode is about is uh, when Sam is telling Ollie to lift him up the elevator, right? And Ollie won't do it. Uh, Ollie is terrified as any child would be in the situation, and uh, and but Sam gets him to pay attention by using his name, by calling him by his name, and there's a sense not just that it gets his attention, but that it kind of calls him from this place of incapacity, this place of just being totally lost, and he says he gives Ollie his name back, and all and then Ollie feels empowered to lift Sam in the crane, and then he tells Ollie to get a weapon, right, and then of course the consequence of this is that Ollie kills Egret. Right with the arrow, so you have this situation where the, the plots come together. That's the other place where they connect, where the bear you didn't fuck, which is like the love between John and Egret, which can't ever be again the way that it was and is never really going to be fulfilled. It's very tragic, right? Or that whole thing about like past memories and good lives and pleasure and warmth and all that stuff again intersects with this idea of like you have a different identity when you're facing crisis and death and battle than you do. Uh, when you're living your life at home in front of your fireplace, and and then it hits this just it's just this impasse, this crux. Then it's like, well, what happens? Everything hits and explodes, right? And that's that's sort of what I thought. I felt like that was the that was the underlying story of the battle, um, to me anyway. I think um, we could actually so connect. Go, oh, sorry. I think we could actually no, go for it, go for all it. three Downton Abbey moments into some sort of uber Downton Abbey ball. I don't know a theme. Um, in that, go for it. <laughs> well, in the way that um, you have characters who are um, identifying themselves as individuals with specific names, or other people are identifying them as you are Ollie, um, and then you have other characters who um, are defining themselves in relation to a group, like we are the Watchers of, on the Wall. Um, so I guess the question is, where does identity come from? Uh, which identities can get you to fight harder? Because you have um, Igreet, who's you know torn between her people and John, and of course, uh, you know, being torn back and forth is what gets her killed because she has that moment of hesitation. Um, so, and then uh, you can sort of compare in more macro sense of the um, the people on the wall define themselves primarily as a group. Um, the individuals 
have no individual identity most of the time, except for Jon Snow, who himself like is this individual who's like, I am in charge, even though I'm not really in charge, which is why he sort of butts heads with the leadership, because he sort of sees himself as more of an individual than um, the underlings in the Watch are supposed to uh, have or be. Um, so, meanwhile, you have the people on the wall who identify m mainly as a group, and then you have the wildlings who are, like, they're a group, but they're very loosely associated. Um, I think you could say they're more individualistic as a people. Um, you know, you wouldn't say that Igreet really cares about the wildlings as a nation. I guess she does a little bit, but I think she looks out for number one, and I think that's true of all of the wildlings. So I guess this um, fight, if you were looking at it from an ideological perspective, is um, sort of between the individualists who define themselves as, you know, I, I am a person with a name uh, versus the people who define themselves in relations with others and which is stronger. And I mean, what do you think? Does that make any sense? <laughs> Well, it makes sense. Oh, go go ahead, Ryan. We gonna jump in? No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, so it makes sense both in that it sounds like you are on the side of the wildlings and how you frame the the because that's how the wildlings see the conflict between not, the free folk and the crows. But well, I know, but but your fate, but you're defining in a way that favors the Night's Watch, right? Like you you sort of this is sort of um, the Night's Watch might just would not necessarily describe this as a fight between kind of individualists and collectivists. Um, but that the, the wildlings would describe it more as such. But framing it as a fight between individuals and collectivists favors the collectivists. I just think that's an interesting back and forth. Um, maybe. I mean, maybe Jon Snow would probably see it as individualism, but they don't. I mean, they hate the wildlings so much. So what's 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 the deal? I guess you know what is the um, Alistair Thorne, right? He he's very firmly identified with the Night's Watch, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. We get to see his. Uh, it's interesting. That's actually an interesting thing to think of. Um, is if we see this. So, so just sort of who's who is really on the side? If this is a battle between collective action and individualism, which it very well might be, and the more I think about it, uh, the more it kind of makes sense. But the battle lines aren't really straight. No, right? definitely what, not. Yeah, because what sign is Jon Snow on? Like Jon Snow is a, an individualist, right? Jon Snow is yeah. like, I'm going to take command when nobody's here. No one else is taking command. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out that gate. I'm going to find Mance Raider, you know, and I'm going to turn my long claw sideways, you know, uh, but it's just like, I'm going to punch him. I'm going to get in my boat and go up river, and I'm going to punch that sorry son of a bitch bison so hard. <laughs> His kids feel it, right? Like, Jon Snow is going all like Jean-Claude Van Damme on this situation, which is very individualistic, despite Jean-Claude Van Damme being uh, Belgium, which is, of course, Belgium being a home of, of all sorts of international collective action. But um, <laughs> that's, that's neither here nor there. The point is that, um, you know, you see, uh, you see that Alistair Thorne has been a thorn in the side of Jon Snow for the entire show. Been mean, being mean to him, mocking him, you know, kind of approving tacitly of him being hazed, trying to get him, not letting him be a ranger, like all this other kind of stuff. And um, But here we see that he's actually pretty awesome at doing the one thing that, it's, that he is dedicated to doing, which is defending the wall, right? So maybe he wasn't a jerk the whole time. Maybe he was just a collectivist. And maybe he recognized to some degree that Jon Snow was an individualist and that his way of looking at things is incompatible with the way that the White Knight's Watch looks at the world. Um, perhaps. Perhaps. I don't know. Um, and then, of course, there's Jano Slid, which is a, a, a cowardice -ist, ist Cowardice? I don't even know. 
But, but, I mean, Ryan, what do you think about that? I mean, you, you know a fair amount about uh, individualism, collectivism, institutions, indigenous peoples, all that stuff. Well, uh, where does, yeah, where... I guess – well, I think that – I think that – I mean, part of what I was thinking about is that what's interesting is – I mean, right, it's, it's a – there's a – this – chicken egg problem right that you know what comes first the individual or the group right that you know um like groups are made of people just like soil and green groups are made of people right <laughs> um and and but i say that in that um you know that that rather than and i think what's interesting is that even though we have so rather than it being buckets um and i, I think shana you 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 kind of um, mentioned this as a, um, a continuum, and I think that's right. And what's interesting, though, is that in you know just in, in the even throughout the battle, you have people kind of wavering and oscillating in more kind of collective um, oriented behavior and kind of group oriented behavior and kind of playing a social role in a group. Um, and and. Uh, and other times you see them being more individual. And again, John's an interesting example of this. Is sometimes he's being John Snow, the guy who is a leader because, you know, he like just can't, he won't listen to anybody else. So he's going to do it and he will either get, you know, killed or punished or people will follow him. Um, but in other times he is kind of stepping up of, you know, losing himself um, a little bit in the um, in in right so sort of what you were saying, Pete. He's kind of losing himself not just in um, in in the the battle, but in the role. And and I guess that and, and I think that there's two other things that um, you know relate to this. Two other pieces that I think relate to this kind of fluidity of individualism and collectivism, and and seeing the ebony ebbing and flowing of this with the ebb and flow of the battle. So one is um, it. Meister Eamon says, you know, uh, like there's one very interesting thing that I remember um, in his in his story of he says when I was Eamon Targaryen, right? And so that 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 you know, and and so that in that moment he is, you know, on the one hand, um, indicating you know Meister Eamon is is the collective Eamon because he's playing his role with respect to this um, this social organization, um, but then Eamon uh, Targaryen is the um, is is the individual side, and they're kind of um, and and they're 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 able to coexist either coexist or they're able to kind of you know move fluidly moment to moment. And I think the other thing that visually in the visual language of the um, of the of the fight that for me. Um, ties up this idea of the fluidity um, between um, individual and collective is the awesome shot that uh, that pans around the entire um, battle scene and moves uh, around everyone. And this is, this is a, a kind of shot. I mean, the other kind of cinematography or the other film, the recent film that uses this is there's a scene in the Avengers movie um, that does this. But then actually uh, uh, some of the earliest uses of this kind of uh, movement of the camera um, through a like sort of circularly around a a kind of big area. Um, I associate it a lot with um, the French filmmaker Jean Renoir, um, and uh, he, he does it a bit in a film called The Grand Illusion. Um, and there's a few other of his films uh, which he uses this uh, as well, in which this movement uh, and this and this is he was a French filmmaker of um, like the the 30s 
30s and 40s, um, primarily was this kind of high period. And the, some of these really famous early shots of, um, of kind of panning around a space are meant to, um, one of the things that evokes is, you know, of, of a, a collective, right? And that, um, and I think what's interesting, though, is that as you move and as you pace one of these, you see the visual language shows that there is individuals doing these things, but in fact, there is a whole. And right, so what's interesting is that even though war is a war or a battle is uh, kind of envisioned as just a breakdown of, of order and, and a, a kind of just, I guess, what individuals throwing themselves against each other, there is in fact a constitution of a collective in that moment. I guess this gets back to kind of what I was seeing in this of the kind of intermingling, right? So that, um, that, you know, that in this moment where they're all there and they're all part of this, this landscape that, that is this, this totality, this, this circle, um, that, that in fact, these two sides become part of one collective, and the collective is this is this warring thing that's happening. Um, and so it's not even a breakdown; it's just a recreation of something else. Of so there's individuals and selves and individuals that are kind of there's not there's no beginning and end, but it's it, they're they're just kind of cycling. And I'm using our visual medium to um, to to demonstrate that. I think yeah, the scene that the, oh, go oh, ahead, Gina. Oh, uh, just very quickly, I, I really like what you're saying, uh, Ryan, about the way the camera was moving. It was making me think of um, how plot-wise uh, you have this in interconnectedness, um, sort of like uh, individuals uh, p taking one action that leads to another action that leads to all this like a collective movement. It's sort of like uh, Rube, Go uh, Goldberg, uh, that Rube Goldberg machine almost. Like you have uh, Sam uh, decides that he's going to do something after, well, sorry, even before that. So Pip dies, so then Sam makes a decision that he's going to go somewhere, so then he goes to Ollie, who needs to uh, bring up the elevator, um, so then Sam tells him, oh, take the bow and arrow, so then Ollie goes and he shoots Agreet, and you could even argue from that decision, um, and seeing Agreet die, that uh, sets John off that he's going to leave and talk to Mance Raider, so you have all these individual uh, decisions sort of stacking up um, and uh, the cards are falling down all in this like beautiful pattern um, almost so individuals leading to collective action leading to plot I like it I think it's pretty cool I, li I really like this idea of seeing the big shot of the whole castle as collectivizing the Night's Watch and also collectivizing the Night's Watch and the Wildlings, who often look indistinguishable yeah. from each other. There are a lot of shots in this episode of looking out at the field and just seeing a mass of people and really yeah. not knowing what to deal with. And then also a lot of people who have to move through this area, right? Jano Slint does it, Gren does it, Sam does it, John does it, where they have to go in there and there's these moments where they sort of stand there and you kind of wait to see if something's going to happen to them and then they traverse the area. But, and the other, the other, scene this reminds me of, which leads me to think that this is onto something, is, is when Pip dies, right? So right before Pip dies, he shoots someone with his crossbow, right? And he's like, oh, I killed one, right? I killed one of them. And, and Sam has to remind him that this isn't, this isn't a battle about one person, 
right? It's about like the whole big thing. And of course, now I can talk about it that way because I understand from the way you've been framing it that this is what the scene is about. That that Pip is the, he thinks, oh, I accomplished the individual thing, and it's like yeah. you're not in an individual situation. And then, of course, he gets killed. And as Shana points out, there's like a chain of events where individuals who matter to us as individuals are killed as part of this collective thing that's happening around us, right? So the arrow that Pip shoots gets him shot. Well, Egret kills Pip, right? Egret kills Pip, which causes Sam to find Ollie, which causes Ollie to kill Egret. So there's also sort of like there's like a cool cyclicality to that, too. You can actually um, think about it also in terms of the like one-on-one battles that happen throughout the episode, which um, is kind of like your war movie or martial arts movie cliche that you have all this stuff going around and you can't tell who's who and who's killing who. Um, but then uh, the sort of the crowds part, and then you have like um, you know these two people. What was it, Alistair and uh, what's his name? Big guy with beard. Beardo, Beardo, <laughs> yeah. Beardo, uh, like doing Tormund, this epic Torm- fight. Tormund Giant's Bane, is that what you're talking That's about? That's the one, yeah. Um, and, you know, you would think um, that these two people would come together and it would just be one individual against one individual. Um, but then, you know, it turns out that Tormund isn't killed in an epic way and neither is Alistair. It just sort of comes to nothing. The battle continues. They're, you know, they're getting hurt doesn't really turn the battle one way or another, maybe a little bit. Um, yeah, so in any other movie, maybe you would have like this one big fight and that would be the end of it um, because you have these two individuals and that's their individual climax. But no, it's really about everyone, right? But also one-on-one people. It is a problem with the episode that the battle doesn't finish in the episode. They should just finish it. I'm not going to say what happens because I don't want to spoil yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, no. I, I mean, so I, as I've made well known, I there's two things that are relevant to this. Is One is that I have not read this far in the books. I'm only still par- partway through book two. And the other thing is that I, um, out of stubbornness or whatever, read the um, Onion AV Club uh, Game of Thrones recaps for experts because I resent being called a novice um, just because I haven't read some books. Um, and so I know what happens next um, just as I knew what what happened at the end of last episode and I but like you know again knowing that Oberyn dies didn't make how it happened any less awesome and in fact it, it kind of gives it this kind of you know the, a climax um, and you know similarly I kind of was like well this thing's going to happen and I want the pleasure of seeing how it happens and how it comes together with these things that I'm you know feeling are kind of interesting and then as a result the way that it and I was kind of watching the clock and I'm like this this isn't going to happen. Yeah. This, and then it's like, and then, um, or, or I know that it's not going to happen, but it's not going to, what? Not gonna uh, it's not going to Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's not going to happen in the episode. And yeah, exactly. And, and, and it's like, uh, and then it was more and more, it's like, wait, it's ending on like this Jon Snow going out into the light. I mean, it, like that felt, you know, again, we talked about this before, but we, it felt, um, uh, that, yeah, both in terms of the plot and in terms of, what some of what had been established of what was going on thematically, which as we kind of teased out here, is kind of interesting. Again, it felt like, uh, I want more. <laughs> just give, just yeah. give it to me. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I also say that um, that the, the episode doesn't cash in some of the stuff that happens pretty early on. Uh, the the, mm-hmm. the Sam and Gilly plot, I think, in this episode uh, suffers. And because this is supposed to be an episode where we, we end the episode, right, where Sam 
is, you know, well, I guess, does he end the episode there? But he leaves Gilly, he comes back to Gilly, he kisses Gilly, right? He pledges at the beginning of Gilly he's never going to leave her, and he leaves her, and he comes back. Like, a lot of, there's a lot of stuff bound up in Gilly for Sam that is related to a lot of the things that are happening throughout the episode. Everything from Tormund's bear, right, and Sam being a virgin, to Eamon's lost love, to Gren reciting the Night's Watch oath, and okay, well, Gren is living up to the spirit of the oath as well as the letter of the oath. But there isn't an end, there isn't a, pl- a moment for Sam and Gilly where you see any sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like uh, culmination, any sort of, of uh, transcendence, anything that, that, any climax to their plot. There's nothing that transforms their relationship in this episode, really. Right? They, they, there isn't, there isn't a, an insight that happens, there isn't a moment of irony or connection or unity or anything. Um, and I feel like that's one of the main shortcomings of the plot. That and it doesn't end with requiring Tormund Giant Spain to have sex with a bear, which I think would have been another way to make it awesome. Uh, no, at least, I'm sorry, to make, it, to make the ending and the beginning more connected with each other. Um, there's, the, battle doesn't, the battle doesn't have a climax, and Sam and Gilly don't have a climax. And I don't mean that literally, although literal, a literal one might have worked as well. You know, why not? You're changing everything else. At least, at least she'd you know be consensual. Thing, other than all the other poor actresses you've thrown through the meat grinder this season, that's a really cruel way of saying. It. I apologize, but it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I'm a little, I'm, I am frustrated. I don't want to get too down on it, but uh, I definitely feel like the there is an ideological underpinning to the episode that's actually kind of interesting. There's a lot of themes in this episode that are actually kind of interesting. There's a lot of cool moments in the episode that are actually kind of interesting, and it just needs it all to come together. And we know that that moment is coming if we know what happens in the story, but it didn't happen this episode, and that's so frustrating, right? And like that's that's pretty much like my take on the episode in general. I don't care about Jon Snow at this point in the story. He's not doing anything I care about. Like, I mean, maybe I'd care about him if I had a crush on him, like half the people that talk about him on the internet, right? Like, if, if we were filming Pompeii, then, like, what happened to Kit Harrington wouldn't matter, even though it didn't in the history, but because like, it's Pompeii. But, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I know I'm ranting. But he's, but, he's like, a very, he, he's a very, very sexy, like, stone now. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I know uh, nothing. <laughs> I'm also kind of interested, we have gotten nothing on the Twitters. This is the first... Uh, episode in, uh, you know, like maybe three or four weeks where nobody's tweeted anything at us. I don't think people even have questions. Um, I mean, I will clarify in the books. Uh, throughout the course of the episode, uh, my girlfriend who I watched it with, who is, uh, loves it and hates that the season is coming to an end, but is not a book reader, kept asking me, kept asking me sort of tauntingly, like, don't tell me, does that person die too? Does that person die? <laughs> and I'm like, these people are all doing totally different things than they did in the books. I don't know what happens to any of them, right? Like, um, like I'm pretty sure that Gren makes it in the books and like is important later uh and that in fact there's a, well there's a whole other no i'm not talking about grenfell jones one, known as gren one of wales's best known and longest serving newspaper cartoonists uh, uh, which will include him in the show notes um oh boy no, i'm talking about hey, I, I, have, I have a question uh that to, one thing we also have not talked about um, is the is the giants, uh, the yes. giants and the woolly mammoths, um, and I have a lot of questions about them, right? Because it was it was just something that was visually stunning and kind of um, you know cool and high impact and kind of you know pleasurable in the you know kind of action slash fantasy movie sort of way. Um, but I think that um, I'd love to kind of see if if anything. Um, that is kind of going on with the choreography of the giants connects to anything that we're discussing, or it is just kind of noise. But I have one factual question. Um, when the 
because I, I may have not gotten this right. When the uh, when the giant is uh, at the 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 gate uh, or at the the first gate, um, and he's trying to pull it off. Now, is he using one chain or two chains? Well, you see, Ryan, the reason he's able to get that down is that he uses the 300 foot-pounds of torque of the all-new Chevy Silverado. <laughs> when you when you need when you need to pull like a mammoth, uh, um, two chains. Oh, Shana, please protect us from ourselves. Save us. I'm I'm gonna not talk about the two chains, uh, but instead about the uh, way that scene was shot, or, or a lot of the scenes by the wall when the wildlings are coming in. Um, we had seen people climbing up uh, a similar, uh, you know, sheer ice thing uh, last season. Last season we had that whole thing about the climb uh, from Littlefinger. So you had this idea of people looking up and, and climbing up. In this episode, um, if you want to talk about like hegemonic discourse or whatever, we're mostly from the point of view of uh, the Night's Watch and we're mostly looking down from the wall and watching them, uh, you know, uh, have barrels rolling down and lighting uh, arrows and raining those uh, flaming arrows down. Of course, eventually you see, um, you know, this woolly mammoth on fire, which is pretty cool. But, yeah, I would say for the most part, we're mostly up looking down as opposed to down looking up. Yeah, and there are there are two chains because there's the second chain, which he swings down to knock people off right. the wall, right? Which is, I guess, is that like a reference to the chain that doesn't appear in the Blackwater episode of season two, which appears in the books, like they use a giant chain. Uh, I guess it's a cool idea to like fling the giant chain down and hit people with it. That's kind of nice. Um, but yeah, uh, so there are two chains. But yes, but uh, but yeah, we are we are on the top of the wall. We're looking down at everybody else. We don't we don't see a lot of the people. We only see the giants. Um, the giants, I felt like, what they're they were portrayed as pretty tragic. I thought like their deaths were pretty tragic. Like, the giant who is who is nailed in the back, right, is like, oh, like, that's, like, also the giant's trying to get away from the fire that's coming down on them. I tend to think of the giants and the mammoths as having a, a in, the, in the story, as having an uncomplicated relationship with death, wherein they don't want it to happen to them, whereas, like, the humans have this weird sort of self-destructive impulse, but the giants are this sort of, like, this force of nature, right? And they're kind of, like, they know what they have to do to survive, and, and they have this mm. vigor to them. And why, and the, even the, the giant deadlifting the gate, right? Like, the sort of setting in place and, like, power lifting the gate. It, there's just, like, a simplicity and an earnestness to what they're trying to accomplish. Um, I'm now just thinking about giant CrossFit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like amazing, right? Like, uh, I like, and it just really like, you know, I, like in the next, uh, in the next episode, the giants are going to do wall balls. And they're going to have these huge <laughs> boulders that they're throwing up the wall. <laughs> I could just see the the Lord of Light uh, cult members in CrossFit. It just seems like a good <laughs> synergy there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Oh man, the night is dark and full of. <laughs> the, yeah, the wad, the wad is dark and full of terrors. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, they just need a chipper. We can just make CrossFit jokes all day. Uh, I, I, sure, I sure could. Um, but yeah, so so the giants are filmed, and that last giant who survives, they they hold the wall, but nobody follows him. <laughs> like, isn't there is there kind of a sense that what would have happened if the giant had gotten through the gate? I mean, I guess they would have had a lot of trouble killing him, and he would have killed a lot of people. But it doesn't yeah. seem like it would have been much different from what had happened. 
right? Or is that the battle was so tight on the inside that if the giant got through, he would have upset it, and the Night's Watch definitely would have lost? Um, well, he could have gone back and opened up the gate, right? Oh, I mean, like if he if he got through the inner gate, he could hoist the outer gate. He wouldn't have had to like. Yeah. He did it once, he, but I guess you know. Again, that's the the you know. Yeah. It would be hard. It would be harder. Yeah. But maybe you could go up and be like, "Hey guys, could you can I have a little help here?" Like, and uh, <laughs> you know, get two more giants on the other side, and they they lift it together. Yeah. So so okay. So we've talked about. I want to kind of reference. Um, what we've talked about, we talked about a bunch of the individualism, collectivism. What do you think about Alistair Soren's speech about mm. the, uh, what's the, what does he call them? The, uh, so the word twat is used, I believe. Um, is that what he uses for the people? Those sort of underlings? Clever little twats is what he calls them. Uh, when he talks about how... Not to be confused with ginger minges. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Uh, this is awful, guys. We are off the rails. We're off the chains. Um, but so, so not, Alistair, look, we are we are just like I didn't make any of that up. We are <laughs> responding to the source material. Like this didn't come from my brain. <laughs> we didn't land, land on Ginger Minge. Ginger Minge landed on us. <laughs> that would be the that would be the title of this podcast if we title these things in less useful manners than we do. By the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, yes, I got the title wrong. I think it says episode ten. It should be episode nine. I, I'm going to fix that in post. It'll be like it never happened. But anyway, Alistair Thorne outlines a uh, a theory of government, right? Wherein it says uh, that um, that you know what leadership is. Leadership is getting questioned by every clever little twat like you, and getting second guessed by every clever little twat like you. But what happens if the leader second guesses himself? Then all of the clever little twats die, and the leader dies as well, right? Um, I'm not sure that's how it actually works. I don't think that's how it, that if like Obama for just a second questioned himself, we would all perish. Um, but I mean, I guess and it's interesting to think about certainty and, and leadership because we've seen a lot of models of leadership over the course of the show. Oleana Tyrell and her idea of we need to have a royal wedding. Right, and that's a way that we construct an idea of leadership and control. Um, you know, Ty Tyrion being kind of a technocrat and being like, "Okay, I'm going to run the city well, and then people will like me for it." And nope, it doesn't work that way. Right, Tywin and his ruthlessness and his, you know, is just his brutality uh, in asserting his control over situations. Roose Bolton, you know, and Ramsay Bolton, and them getting shirtless and knife fighting in their basement as a man manner of of conducting international diplomacy. Uh, but this is one model. Right. I mean, what do you guys think about Alistair Thorne? Do you think that this is being put forward as something that we should admire and ascribe to? Like, where does it fall in terms of because because autocracy is not the same as collectivism, right? Like, despotism is not the same as groupthink. Um, but what, what do you guys think about that? I'm just uh, trying to figure out a way to compare it, even though he's not a leader, to what Sam was saying about how he was able to fight when he was nothing because he wasn't thinking of himself at all and I guess you could argue that when you second-guess yourself um, you are focusing on yourself as opposed to focusing on others and therefore you cannot rule properly and maybe you could argue that um, a lot of the failed leaders in Westeros uh, the problem is that they are focusing too much on themselves and their own uh, desires as opposed to focusing on the masses. Um, I would have to go through each leader to see how true that is, um, but I don't know, maybe that's the point the show is making. I don't know. 
Well, I think what's interesting is that the, like, part of, it's really interesting because ultimately, you know, it, on the one hand, it seems as if Alistair is saying, well, um, you know, the reason you should follow me is because I don't second guess myself. But really, it's that you should follow me because I'm the leader, uh, and and thus I don't have like I don't have to be second guessed. Um, but like I think what's interesting, I mean, we talked about this a little bit, is that you know that John, I mean, like what separates the leader from like the you know the the twats that are questioning the leader, and it's the ultimately the title of of leader, right? And so that I think that I guess another way to to spin it is that now that you know if John is now moving into a place where you know in the heat of the battle he's a leader, and you know I it seems like this is a thing that he's kind of pushing forth that you know. And I think it's interesting because he, as he is in like the last scene, he basically, you know, Sam is trying to dissuade him from his um, his plan, and he kind of, without reiterating Sir Alistair's speech, he basically just embodies it. Right? He just is like, um, you know, well, like, do you have any? Like, I forget exactly what he says, but he's like, well, what's your plan? Um, And I think that so it's interesting. I mean, I guess in terms of understanding what this this mode of leadership uh, or this kind of facet of leadership whether it's a virtue or a flaw i think remains to be seen but uh, certainly it seems to be something that is kind of a mode of, of leadership um if not it's if not the mode um in a way and since I keep thinking of oh sorry pete you go on Oh, I was just going to say that since it's in the snowy north, it's a la mode. But anyway, go ahead, Sheena. <laughs> I just I I keep thinking of the word clever because I guess that's not something I don't associate with uh, twats normally. Um, but I guess when you think of people who are clever little twats questioning, um, the cleverness is that they are coming up with clever ideas for the future, new ways of doing things. And this episode was all about the past. Um, Alistair's uh, big speech, he was saying, you know, this wall has never fallen before and it's not going to fall today because we're just going to do what people have always done in the past. It worked then, it worked now. They had their leader um, who they listened to, they had their oath. You have the same oath, you have a leader who's basically the same as all the leaders who came before. You know, by that math, you know, arithmetic says we're going to win this time because that's the way it always worked before. Um, and I guess uh, at the end when John is saying, well, what's your plan? Um, it's him acknowledging that, you know, sometimes you do need a clever little twat like Sam to come up <laughs> with some new way of doing things, even if he's not a fighter, even if he doesn't seem <laughs> like the person who is going to make things happen because he's more like Maester Eamon, who is just like some relic sitting in a library. You know, Sam, at the beginning of the episode, was reading a book, and even Maester Eamon was saying, well, what did the people who write those books know? You know, they didn't have any hands-on experience, and Sam doesn't have hands-on experience doing almost anything, including, you know, having sex with Gilly or whatever. But nevertheless... People like him can imagine different solutions to maybe the same problems, but 
the problems are always slightly different. So you do need a clever little twat sometimes. But, mm. you know, I, I do see Alistair's point of view, too, that sometimes you just need those little twats to shut up and you just need to do, stay the course. I've, I, yeah, I sound like George W. Bush, but... Yeah, here you, you go. go. Yeah, you go to the we go to war with the clever little twats you have, not the clever little twats you want. Um, but yeah, it's so. I guess we're coming close to the end of our episode. I want to ask just one final question to everybody. What do you guys think here of the end of Ygritte? Um Although we've all been pronouncing it a little bit differently, uh, particularly her talk about how we should have stayed in the cave, right? Um, like, what what is that? What, do you have any re- response to that? Reaction to that? How the it seems like it's a pretty important moment in the story, right? Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts? And for me, it also resonated um, with, and again, I'm terrible with his name, Beardy. Beardy's name is Giantsbane said also something that we should, like a kind of this looking back kind of thing of, um, I should have thrown you off of that wall. Um, is, is is the last thing he says to John. I don't know that. So I guess in terms of what we've been talking about, I connected these two statements of I should have done this and the kind of – so both of these are a statement between about two people and a place. And weirdly though, the thing that I – the thread I saw it connecting to, and there could be a few, um, one is kind of you know the discussion about the – you know the fluidity of self and collective in a given space and kind of in the cinematography of the battle scene. But it's also the, I feel like I also connected it. The other thing that was a really prominent past tense in this episode was um, Meister Eamon's when I was Eamon Targaryen. And so there, I think there is this, you know, a, you know, a recognition of the, like who we were at a given point in time and how that contrasts with, um, you know, an actual point of time where you are. Uh, again, and I think that, that also uh, another kind of, if we're building a quiver of, of uh, arrows for uh, a, a thematic quiver of, um, of scenic arrows, I guess then the Sam kind of losing himself is also in that specific little quiver as well. So I kind of saw those as being like facets of this uh, theme, if that makes sense. Sure. Shana, any final thoughts? Um, all I can think about is the uh, the people on Twitter who that one time said that I always have to make a sex joke, so I'm going to say that the cave represents the ginger minge. There you have it. There you go, Twitter. Now you can't complain. It happened. Two minge! <laughs> uh, something tells me Twitter will find a way to complain. If not about us, then about something. Uh, it's what it's great at. But you know what? Uh, this is what we're great at, which is signing off. We're great at a lot of things. And uh, there's, I could have hit any number of better segues than I did to the end of this show. Uh, but you know what? Maybe we, if this were a high-concept overthinking it podcast, we just end the show abruptly with no sort of uh, culmination in tribute to the structure of this show, or I just fade to white. But it's not. This is the TV Recap. So let me thank you for listening to the TV Recap, watching us on YouTube. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We got a bunch of Eurovision videos, which are awesome. We got video content up the wazoo. It's pretty sweet. And uh, please subscribe to the TV Recaps if you want to hear about this show. We did a bit on Mad Men. You can go back and listen to the whole season of Game of Thrones. You can go back and listen to our old ones about Breaking Bad, which I thought were awesome. Uh, and there's community. There's all sorts of great stuff. Uh, and 24. Then, of course, what was that? 24. 
Oh, that's right. The real-time recap of 24 marches on. We are heading into the late afternoon of Ryan and I recapping all of this season of 24 in one day. We've been under-caffeinated. We've been over-caffeinated. We've been abandoned. There have been mysteries and special guests. It's been a riot. And uh, last episode of 24... Uh, which we, of course, we did not watch this week's episode 24 because it is concurrent when, when we broadcast live to you guys, or at least it's too close to concurrent to do it. But we'll be watching it tomorrow so that we can recap that on Wednesday. So please stay tuned. Where do you find all this awesome stuff? How can I make this all a part of my life? How can I say things to you guys underneath the articles that you write about you that are probably pretty nice because I'm a cool person. I want to be part of a cool intellectual community. Well, come on over to overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, probably doesn't <laughs> deserve. Here, check out. Here's the high concept, high budget tracking shot uh, of what's what's going on. Look at that. It's all Whoa, happening. Beautiful. It's all happening. It's about the collectivity of humankind, <laughs> oh, all in yeah. one living room of an apartment. <laughs> 